0: Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Um, I have not been around very much, but I am hoping that that is going to change. I being uh, Nathan, and I'm joined today for the first time in what feels like, I don't even know, like half a year at least, um, by my good friends, uh, Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, Nathan. So, you
1: guys enjoying the Olympics? I have to admit, I turned it on last night for the first time. I broke my boycott for the Canadian women's national basketball team, um, and they beat Korea, which was wonderful. But that's all I've seen. No, I'm not enjoying. It's hard. The pressure on your shoulders and thinking like morally and ethically about the Olympics. It's hard to to even turn on something you really, truly, truly love, um, like a game of basketball. And not feel that and not feel like it's like you're just contributing and complicit to the whole thing. So I'm, I'm personally not at all. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm not. I mean, I'm just, but I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of keeping up with things <laughs> on Twitter and, you know, I'll see the videos that people share and, you know, I obviously have a special affinity for swimming. So I've been like seeing like quick recaps of some of the races and stuff. Um, But, and then, and then I apparently follow a lot of people in the gymnastics community. So like anytime anything happens in the gymnastics world, I feel like I, I find out about it pretty quickly, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, they're, they're pretty great about sort of supporting athletes, but I think like Derek, I mean, I'm still torn about this. Like, I don't know, is it the right decision to not watch, especially when we have, you know, so many amazing, you know, marginalized athletes that are just totally kicking ass. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right decision. I'm sort of trying it out for now. Um, I, there may be a time where I'm like, oh, I got to watch this. So, so we'll see.
0: Well, the good news is that to d- on today's show, we are so um, so privileged to be joined by one of our favorite scholars and public thinkers about the sport, Jules Boykoff. And we can ask him that a question, Johanna. Mm-hmm. So we'll just, we'll just ask Jules to tell us what to do. Um, <laughs> and hopefully he'll give us some good guidance on that. Um, so anyway, folks, I just want to um, let you know. So we plan to be back to a much more regular schedule uh, for the show, hopefully with the in the upcoming weeks. So do look out for us on more of a, a weekly basis. Um, please, if you feel up to it, um, support the show on Patreon, follow the show on Twitter, um, email us if you'd like to. We're not very good at getting back to emails or, for that matter, messages. Um, you're probably, <laughs> probably better to message us personally um, as opposed to messaging us through, let's say, the, uh, the show account. But we still appreciate you to follow it um, and we appreciate all of your support. For listeners of this show, Jules Boykoff likely needs no introduction. He is professor and chair of politics and government at Pacific University and one of the preeminent public scholars of the Olympics. He has been ubiquitous on television and in print in the past year, highlighting all the problems attendant to the Tokyo Games. He is also author of, among many other books, um, but particularly relevant for our purposes, the books No Olympians and Power Games. Uh, You got to check both of those out. Jules, it is such a joy to have you back on the show.
3: Thank you. It's my honor to rejoin you. So
0: before before we get into all the, you know, the substance, uh, how are you hanging in? You've just been, you're, you're on television constantly. Um, you know, how are you coping with the games right now? Uh,
3: well, it's been intense. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, it's kind of crunch time. So I'm ready. I got a good friend over in Japan, Satoko Itani, and, We talk a lot about what's going on because they're in a similar situation in Japan. Their English is excellent. So they're not only dealing with Japanese media, but also media that's in the English speaking world. And so we pump each other up. They're amazing and they continue. So if they can do it, I can certainly do my best as well. Nothing to complain about over here. No, No doubt.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, listen, let's get right in because this is what I think I, I really want to lay out for listeners first, especially those who, you know, haven't had the opportunity to sort of see your work and familiarize themselves. And so what, what happens is for a lot of people, they might they might come across, you know, on social media or somewhere, people talk about, you know, cancel the Olympics or whatever, but that may not really resonate with them because they don't understand why, right, what the context is. And that is what you've been feverishly writing about for months now, um, highlighting all of those reasons why these games shouldn't be occurring. Can you walk us through the fundamentals of those arguments? Not anything that has changed since July 23rd, the opening ceremonies, et cetera, but going into the games, why were you convinced they shouldn't be happening?
3: Well, in terms of the Tokyo Olympics, I just listened to medical professionals who have been jumping up and down clamoring for the Tokyo games to be canceled for a long time. They were very concerned that if the Tokyo Olympics were to transpire, that it could lead to increases in coronavirus in the country, in the city of Tokyo, and among athletes as well. Many people uh, were speaking out about the inappropriate preparations done by the International Olympic Committee. There was an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that stated very clearly that the international olympic committee was not following best scientific practices so for example athletes were supposed to bring their own masks it was a byom kind of situation instead of having the oh ioc God. make sure to oh. distribute really great n95 masks or you know the fact that cnn has been reporting that in some cases in the olympic village there are eight athletes to a room four to a bathroom obviously that's not best scientific practices in the face oh. of a global health pandemic so for starters I was listening to medical professionals. Second, I was listening to the people in Japan. I mean, in the lead up to the Tokyo Olympics, the general public was in freak out mode. Poll after poll showed that people did not want the Olympics to happen this summer, sometimes upward of 80% in these polls, as was the case with an Asahi Shimbun poll in May. And so out of respect for the local hosts who are concerned about their own health, I also was against having these Olympics. And you know the vaccination rate was very low in Japan and continues to be low compared to other countries, and so I think that was really the driver for a lot of people not wanting to import eleven thousand or so athletes and many tens of thousands of more of officials into a place that could be, become very dangerous situation. So that's kind of why I opposed the Tokyo Olympics. Not to give too long winded of an answer, but you know in general I was opposed to the Tokyo Olympics even before coronavirus for other reasons. Um, My work in in my social science work and and writing has very much focused on the trends that come with hosting the Olympics that -hmm. aren't so much Tokyo problems as they are Olympic problems. That when the elites of your city decide to import the Olympics into your city, they also agree to import these problems. And that is overspending. That is Mm -hmm. the militarization of public space. That is gentrification and forced displacement and that is finally greenwashing. And all of this mm-hmm. often comes with a heavy dose of corruption. So we can talk about those four trends in a fifth one if we include corruption when it comes to the Tokyo 2020 Games, but these are wider and established patterns that social scientists have been talking about now for quite some time.
1: Now, Jules, could you walk us through a few of the, the data points? And I, I, like, I don't expect you to know the most like up-to-date, but to give our listeners some of the context for... How many people in Japan, for instance, oppose the Olympics? You mentioned upwards of of 80%. But perhaps could you also speak to some of the the data that you're aware of on the risk exposure to COVID-19? What proportion of the Japanese population has been vaccinated? Why Mm -hmm. is the vaccine rate so low? Um, And since we often see this as sort of the main justification for these super spreader Olympics, like how much money is at stake to put this on like why are we doing this in the middle of a what seems to be a raging wave a new wave perhaps the worst wave in japan
3: yes all all great questions maybe let's start at the end in terms of why the international olympic committee is ramming ahead with these games and let's be clear it is the international olympic committee that has the power to decide When you look at the host city contract that Tokyo signed with the International Olympic Committee, it states in black and white that the International Olympic Committee is the group that can cancel the games if it comes down to it or terminate the games, Mm -hmm. as it were. And the reason Mm -hmm. why they're not, uh, it sounds kind of crude, but it's just true, is money. They get 73% of their revenues, the International Olympic Committee does, through broadcaster fees. Some estimates have NBC here in the United States where I'm coming to you from, pitching in 40% of the revenues for the International Olympic Committee, you've put on top of that 18% of their revenues come from corporate uh, sponsors, and so that means that more than nine out of every $10 is rolling into their revenue stream through those two sources. So they're perfectly happy to have a made-for-TV event. The Tokyo organizers stood to benefit from having spectators in the audience. Originally, they thought that if they sold all the tickets, the Tokyo organizers would get in the neighborhood of $800 million. Um, They obviously are not getting that because of the fact that there are no spectators. And that's one area where the organizers finally did actually listen to science. In terms of the the data points that that are around coronavirus and and the situation there in the, the vaccination situation, just today, I'm talking to you on Thursday, and the coronavirus nightmare is absolutely running full throttle. In today in Japan, there were more than 10,000 cases of coronavirus uh, for the first time. The nationwide tally of, to be more precise, 10,693 cases included almost 4,000 in Tokyo, which is a record for the third straight day. And so there's no doubt that coronavirus rates are going up inside of Tokyo and also inside of wider Japan. And so I think that is why you're seeing these these issues. In terms of the population, um, there's a very elderly compared to other countries, an elderly population in Japan. And so they're very concerned about that. Japan ran a bunch of extra tests on the vaccines in part because they didn't wanna just rely on the data that was circulating around, in part because on average, people in Japan are smaller than the folks that were undergoing the testing on these different vaccines in the United States and Europe. So they wanted to be extra careful that they were not giving a a huge dose of a vaccine to somebody that would cause problems for them. So in a lot of ways, they were actually doing their due diligence. I don't mean to give them too much credit, because I know there's a lot of people inside of Japan that are really upset about the way they've rolled it out, and they're all good reasons for that. But those are some of the main factors moving forward, and that's why that makes it such a dangerous petri dish of a situation in Japan right now and why you see people jumping up and down still to this day to get the games canceled even now.
2: Wow. Well, thank you so much for laying that out and really just making it clear like how horrific this whole situation truly is. And in terms of the numbers and, you know, I didn't know about the especially the additional testing that they did. So really appreciate that insight. And I guess to maybe hone in on something that you said was that in the contract that the organizing committee in Tokyo signed with the IOC, um, it says that the uh, only the IOC can officially cancel the games. And I guess I have two questions. And one is that what would it take for that kind of language to get changed so that the local organizing committee could be able to cancel it? Um, and, and I also am wondering, you know, if you have a sense of what is the relationship between the Japanese government and the organizing committee in terms of like what is the Japanese government's stance on on hosting the games right now
3: mm-hmm. yeah all great questions so for your listeners they can go online and do a search for the Tokyo host city contract and you can pull it right up and and have a look at the document that we're talking about here and what's perhaps important thinking forward is that similar contracts were signed in places like Paris and Los Angeles, the next two hosts of the Summer Olympic Games. And part of the problem I think is that, so I I think it's very difficult to revise. You'd have to get an army of lawyers in there to start making revisions on these signed contracts. And I don't think the International Olympic Committee would be very excited to do that. And part of the problem for me is that undergirding these contracts is a real democracy deficit. And what I mean is, if you look at, for example, the host city contract of Tokyo, The people that signed it, the elected officials that signed it, are long gone. They're not in office anymore. Even the prime minister, Shinzo Abe, who was a big booster of the Olympics, he even dressed up like Super Mario at the 2016 Olympics in Rio uh, to, to, uh, you know, push for the Olympics and so you know those folks are long gone I think that's something that host cities should be aware of same thing for Los Angeles they're supposed to host the 2028 Olympics the people who signed on the dotted line there which puts the city by the way on the hook for cost overruns and according to Oxford University there are always cost overruns but those folks on the LA contract they're gone too I mean Eric Garcetti might be gone in the next couple weeks to be the ambassador to India And Herb Wesson, who was the head of the city council, he's already out of office. And so that's a real problem. And also, I might point out that with all those games that I'm talking about, whether it's Tokyo, Paris, or Los Angeles, none of the bids came along with a chance for everyday people to weigh in. In other words, there wasn't a referendum or ballot measure. And people who run the Olympics tell us how this is going to be this changing event for your city, how it's going to be a really big deal and yet it's not quite big a deal enough to actually have everyone who um, lives in the city or the area get a chance to weigh in on it. And so in terms of the the government that you're asking about in Japan, you'll often see that it's the, the local government, the national government, the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo Organizing Committee that show for the most part a unified face to the public. And they give the impression that they're equal partners in this endeavor. But as we've been talking about, if you look carefully at the host city contract, at the end of the day, the International Olympic Committee has key powers in particular key moments. And that's what we're seeing playing out right now. Wow.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Um, OK, well, let's let's switch gears because, I mean, you, you've been talking and talking at length about um not just with us, I mean, but but for months, about sort of the, all these issues leading up to the games. But, you know, now the games are kind of on us, and so that raises a whole other slew of issues that emerge out of them. Um, and one that sort of it started in advance, but I think it, it's something that um, that's sort of still playing out, is um, the question of, first of all, um, prior to the games, U.S. sprinter Shakari Richardson being banned for marijuana use, right, which was in fact a function of one of the most mitigating circumstances really that are imaginable, the death of her mother, right? And she publicly said that this was the reason why, and, you know, she just, she owned it <laughs> because, of course, she understands that marijuana is not a performance-enhancing drug when it comes to her athletic exploits. Um, she was using it for another entirely understandable reason. Um, but she was banned from the Olympics, um, and the U- and My understanding—I don't, I don't know the details—but it seems that there was even the possibility that the U.S. team could have allowed her to participate in the relay and not violated any kind of, you know, World Anti-Doping Agency um, regulations, and yet they still elected to leave her at home. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, as the Olympics began, we had Megan Rapino raving about the use of CBD products in a Forbes article. Um, and just to note for liter- uh, listeners, CBD products without THC are no longer banned by the uh, World Anti Drug agency. Um, so there's, that's, there's a technical difference there, but obviously we're talking about something in the same universe. And what we had in like that article, for instance, was Rapino raving about how useful they are to her and her lifestyle, right? And that piece was then a celebration of the use of those drugs. Rapino, of course, is hugely celebrated in the context of the U.S. Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And then to just add one more piece, we have far more horrifically the revelation that U.S. fencing alternate Alan it. Uh, who was under investigation for three accusations of sexual misconduct, was not only included in the team, but, and this is something that really, um, you know, crosses every imaginable line, provided with special accommodations. BuzzFeed reported that, now I'm quoting, Acknowledging the severity of the allegations facing Hazard, USA Fencing, the Athletic Federation in charge of selecting the country's Olympic competitors, created a, quote-unquote, safety plan, to keep him him away from women and out of the Olympic village. He flew in on a separate plane from his teammates, is staying at a hotel 30 minutes away from the other athletes, and won't be allowed to practice alongside women teammates. After he appealed those conditions, get this, the entire roster of Team USA fencers signed a letter demanding the restriction stay in place. I mean, how do you make sense of all of these double, triple, whatever standards, right? Like just this sort of layers of, um, I don't know, um, just uh, double standards.
3: Yeah, there's so much there. And first of all, I just want to say it's a heartbreaking situation, what happened with Carrie Richardson. I mean, here is a woman dealing with her grief in a way that would be legal in so many states and so many countries around the world. And yet she's been prosecuted basically in public for her actions. And, you know, on one hand, it doesn't really surprise me that this would happen in the sphere of the Olympics, where you would see one set of circumstances favoring white people and another set that's very similar uh, disfavoring black people, because. There's the history of the drug war and there's the history of the Olympics. So in terms of the Olympics, it was started by a French aristocrat named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was a straight up racist. And he basically said that he thought it was an okay idea for black people to be in the Olympics, but only so that they could uh, ameliorate their, quote-unquote, you know, a thousand jealousies of the white man. And he said that they should be included because they're lazy. And that was just the sort of sharp-edged way of putting forth white supremacy in the early days of the Olympic Games. Um, We still see it present today, and this is a really good example. Then there's the U.S. drug war as well. And that also has a similar history uh, that is atrocious. And in fact... You have um, people um, going all the way back to the 1920s in the drug war in in the United States saying that uh, using the drug war to attack people of color, whether they're African-Americans linking marijuana use and heroin use to African-Americans or to Latinx folks. I mean, there's just a long history of this. And so this situation actually taps into two longer streams. What you're pointing to with, with CBD and THC Yes, this is this is a striking difference in the way that they're treated. Now both CBD and THC were banned by the World Anti Doping Agency until january first, two thousand eight, when WADA, as it's known, the World Anti Doping Agency, put new rules forth. On the substances, uh, basically saying that um, if if a substance would be banned, if it satisfied two of the three three criteria, one, it has the potential to enhance or enhances sport performance. Well, it doesn't really enhance it. Um, THC, that is, it represents an actual or potential health risk to athletes. Nah, not really. And it violates the spirit of sport. I don't really think so. So it doesn't really meet those criteria. THC, and we hope that that wada will will actually revisit this case but i think it's a really good lens for seeing how white supremacy can dominate the olympic field and one last point you know i don't necessarily hold it against megan rapino for pushing cbd products through her company mendy i think it is a little striking that most of the representatives and spokespeople are, are white when it comes to the cbd products but it is legal and it does seem to be helping her as well. So I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the framing out that I've seen in the Twitterverse that pits Megan Rapino against Shikari Richardson. I just don't buy that. And I think it actually is, it, it takes away from the important conversation that we need to have about this.
0: Yeah, that, that's totally fair, and I think that that's that's a great point to underline. I just want to go back to something that you said, actually, because um, it's not something I was familiar with. You, I think you pointed out, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that in the in WADA's justification for um, why certain types of substances, right, would be banned, uh, you said that one of them was um, if it posed a health risk to athletes. Mm-hmm, I mean, yep. I, just, I just want to say that we are literally talking about a context in which. Um, many of the literal events, like the actual activities that are being kind of justified and regulated by WADA, literally the entire purpose of them is to put the health of athletes at risk. Um, Like if we think about something like gymnastics, for instance, and the entire situation with Simone Biles and the fact that she felt that she had to protect herself because of the incredible danger that is inherent to the sport of gymnastics, right, just for an example. Um, We think about the ways in which, um, you know, obviously we have this whole larger question now of mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the question of the fact that we're asking these athletes to participate in games during the middle of a pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so yeah.
1: profoundly- and like not requiring vaccination as well like that. The games itself are a health risk. Well, right, and, I
0: think, mean, yeah, go
1: ahead. So
2: I was just, just going to say, I mean, it's whose health matters and what does health actually mean? I mean, like, obviously, these female fencers on Team USA, their health, their, like, sexual health doesn't matter, right? Like, they legitimately have a sexual predator, like, a known, well-documented sexual predator who's been, you know, attacking women since, I think, 2010 was, like, the first case that we have of him. So, um, yeah, I just think yeah, exactly, whose health matters, who gets to define what this health risk actually means? I mean, of course, we all know that they're not centering what athletes actually think matters here.
0: Exactly. And let's just add let's talk about gender verification for a moment also, right? And the fact that we literally have these organizations, um medicating people right like putting injecting hormones into people to change their bodies which i think we could probably say like given that the entire purpose of that project is because of some absolutely absurd notion of fairness in sport not health right that again the entire project is exactly the opposite of health right and and, and this is just something could we underline it over and over but it's not, it's not just the olympics right like mm-hmm. sport flies by with this, you know, it's basically um, this sort of fundamental legitimation, justification that it is a healthy pursuit, right? Like over and over again, the justification for enrolling people in sport, the justification for football at times, right? Oh yeah, people get brain injuries, but I mean, listen, it's going to help conquer the obesity epidemic. And by the way, all of that's in quotes, obesity epidemic in quotes. Um, Right? We, we, We use the health line and yet what we know, if we take it seriously, is that fundamentally more than anything else, what elite sport is is unhealthy. It is a body destroying activity. It is a mind destroying activity, and we can't let people use that health line. Um, so sorry, just gotta gotta get off the soapbox now. But yeah,
3: <laughs> no, it's all great great points that all three of you are raising there, and just that. I think it is important to key in on that one criteria that WADA says determines whether a substance will be banned, and that is it represents an actual or potential health risk to athletes. And you've just pointed out so many important ways in which the the health risk of athletes is jeopardized by decisions made by these very same honchos in, in the Olympic sphere. And I think it points to this sort of selective ethics that thrums through the Olympic world After all, these games, one of their big mantras is that they are safe and secure games, quote unquote. Um, And yet 83% of athletes from the United States, only 83% are vaccinated going over to the games. I mean, that is is just wild. It is just, that is not a safe and secure situation. And yes, having some predator uh, being able to go to the Olympics and realize his Olympic dreams against the will of everybody else on on the team is definitely under the category of potential health risk to the athletes. I mean, even just the mental health of having that stress of this individual being around could be incredibly triggering and horrible. And yet, again, the selective ethics reigns and some people benefit from that selective ethics and others don't. And it tends to fall down on racial lines. Every single time, no, but the trend lines are very clear.
1: Now, I, that's a, a great, great point. And I want to kind of change uh, the discussion just a little bit to what to one of the other kind of themes that we're seeing play out in these Olympics. And I think uh, on, in the Twitterverse and in, in general, um, talking about protests and political um, takes during the Olympics. And IOC Rule 50 notoriously states, and I'm quoting... No kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. This has been modified for Tokyo, as we know, to allow for uh, expression, quote, on the field of play prior to the start of competition. Yet in the U.S. trials, we saw Olympian Gwen Berry make a very clear and powerful protest on the podium during the playing of the U.S. national anthem. Have you seen and kind of are you expecting to see any protests that contravene the IOC's dictates? Um, and if so, how do you see that playing out? And, and just for context for our listeners, we're on, um, it's July 29th and we're on, I think, day six of the Olympics. And I don't think we've seen anything yet. But I, to be honest, I have not been watching much of the Olympics.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just a little background on on Rule 50 that has come under a lot of fire lately from athletes and athlete-led groups. It was uh, put into place in the early 1970s conspicuously after John Carlos and Tommy Smith thrust their fists into the Mexico City sky uh, to speak out for black freedom and human rights while Peter Norman, the white sprinter from Australia, stood astride them wearing an Olympic Project for Human Rights button. And it was immediately after that that the IOC fortified rules in its charter and made them very explicit that athletes could not engage in demonstrations anywhere in the Olympic zone. And that has largely stayed intact over the years until July when the International Olympic Committee made some tiny concessions that said that athletes could engage in what we could consider to be a demonstration or protest before their participation in the Olympics on the field of play. And that's why you've been able to see, for example, at some of the women's soccer matches, how the teams have taken a knee before the match. That is acceptable according to these new rules. Now, what is unacceptable, uh, unacceptable is that they can still not protest on the podium yeah. and or on the field of play during the games. Now, one thing that I find really interesting is that if you look at the International Olympic Committee's rhetoric around Smith and Carlos, um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos from 68, if you look at their rhetoric today, they're pretty favorable about them. In fact, if you go to the official Olympic channel, there's a little feature video that you can watch about how they are legends and how they stood up courageously for what they believed in. And yet, even these revised rules, very small revisions, right? But that even these revised rules prohibit the emergence of a new wave, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. And so there's just a deep and abiding hypocrisy that is happening there. In terms of the two, uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics, what we've seen so far, we actually have seen some interesting moments. And I think the two athletes that I'll talk about have very casually disguised kind of what their their motives were. There was, for example, uh, badminton player from Hong Kong, Angus Ng Ka Long, who was involved in a, in a political controversy in his first match. He wore a simple black t-shirt with his initials on it, as well as the words Hong Kong China. And black t-shirts are often associated with Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. And so there were people within uh, China and Chinese nationalist politicians were up in arms about the fact that he wore this T-shirt instead of the official outfits that are sponsored by this this firm called Yonex and that contain um, Hong Kong's emblem on them, the official emblem. So I think this can be potentially read as uh, a political gesture. I think we'll learn more as we go here. And he may never admit that this was a political gesture. I mean, think back to 2014 when Alexei Sobolev, the Russian snowboarder Mm. at the Sochi Olympics in Russia, He snowboarded down the hill with an image on his snowboard that was unmistakably an allusion to Pussy Riot, the art collective that was making hay and critiquing the the regime in in Russia at the time, and that was even critiquing the Olympics. And when asked about it, Sobolev said, oh, you know, you can think whatever you want, but no, I'm not going to say that it was a protest. And so the other one here, though, back to 2020 Olympics, is there was this Costa Rican gymnast uh, who, at, her name is Luciana Alvarado, who at the end of her routine thrust her fist upwards. Um, in the Black Lives Matter kind of way. And she said afterwards that, you know, she said, we are all the same. We are beautiful and amazing. And so she, too, kind of seems to have found maybe perhaps a little bit of a loophole slipping in her gesture as part of her official routine. And so what we're actually seeing is just incredible athlete creativity here uh, among these these pretty um ridiculous strictures that are still in place because if we listen to athlete groups out there and i want to highlight a couple of them for example global athlete who i think is a a really important group on the cutting edge right now they're an athlete-led group or the athletics association which is a group of organized track athletes from around the world, many of whom are at these Olympics this summer. Or if we look at the International Swimmers Alliance, which has emerged Mm -hmm. to try to organize swimmers as well, they're all saying, hey, we don't have to check in our human rights at the door when we come to participate in the Olympics. And what they're talking about is the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, which states in Article 19 that you cannot interfere with someone's freedom of expression. Well, Rule 50 is a clear interference mechanism for people's uh, right to speak out. And so I'm interested to see, just as I know you all are, what happens in the coming days in terms of athlete activism. But I think we've seen a couple interesting incidents, but there's a whole lot of more possibilities ahead.
1: Yeah, I think as as you were talking, I completely forgot um, the the kind of explicit forms of, of protest that we've been seeing around support for Palestine as well, with with some athletes pulling out in uh, pulling out uh, of events against Israeli competitors. So there's there are there are these things that are, I think, percolating at the surface uh, in the in the Olympics, either implicitly or explicitly, as you're pointing out. I had a question that that. We kind of raised um uh, all, all three of us while you were talking. What is the punishment for violating this rule fifty?
3: I'm really glad you asked because the punishments are extraordinarily nebulous, which is to mm-hmm. say they help the arbitrary nature of the International Olympic Committee's power. There are not clear guidelines. I mean, if you were an athlete going into it, you'd want to know what would happen to me should I violate this rule fifty. And there just aren't clear standards. So I think it points to the arbitrary nature of the rule as well as the arbitrary nature of International Olympic Committee power.
0: Has any athlete ever been sanctioned according to Rule 50 that you're aware of in the past?
3: You know, there's been threats Um, back at the the 2012 Olympics. There was a boxer named uh, Damian Hooper who was representing Australia. He was an Aboriginal, is an Aboriginal boxer. And in, when he entered the ring to fight against the US boxer Marcus Brown, he wore a T shirt that had an indigenous flag on it. He said mm-hmm. he was just proud to be Aboriginal and he wanted to show that to the world. And the International Olympic Committee apparently didn't like that. According to news reports, they put the screws to the Australian Olympic Committee, who asked him to never wear that because it's not an official flag and it oh, could be deemed gross. political because he adhered to their threat basically he, he said no oh, i didn't mean to do that i was just you know proud of i'm proud of who i am uh, nothing happened to him there's also Fay- Fayesa lilesa the marathoner from ethiopia mm-hmm. who crossed his wrists in an x shape to indicate support for his oromo people back in ethiopia who were being oppressed at the time and nothing happened to him so i think that just points to the arbitrary nature of the situation that we're dealing with. I mean, can you think of any other sphere where the penalties for breaking a rule or law are not laid out as clear? I mean, most of the time, that's kind of how it works with rules and laws. The penalties are supposed to be clear and obvious so you know what you're getting into, but not in this case.
2: And you know what I think is really instructive, sort of as it is always, but I th- like bringing up all of these examples of athletes all over the world that are protesting or at least who are showing gestures to make it seem as if they are making some kind of political statement. Because I think from the sort of U.S.-North American perspective, you know, we tend to think that like American athletes are the ones that really dominate th- this kind of activity. And actually that's, that's not necessarily the case. And historically there have been so many athletes who have... Use kind of the Olympic stage or at least use their athletic or their participation in international competitions as a way to make some kind of political statement, but of course the ones that historically have been either reprimanded or obviously um, Smith and and, and um, Carlos, um, right, that those are the ones that kind of stick out when there are many, many more um, examples of athletes protesting and I always go back to also 1968 Olympic Games with Vera Chaslaska, the, the Czech Slovak gymnast, Mm -hmm. but like because she was not protesting like a western body, right? She was protesting the Soviets, that kind of a performance was acceptable, right? So that's the other thing that I think also points to kind of the, the nebulous rule that you're pointing to here is that it allows the IOC to to decide and and kind of arbitrarily decide who are they going to penalize, what is going to be the punishment, right? Rather than say, you know, we unilaterally will not allow this and this is going to be the punishment, right? It allows them to adjust it to their own needs, which, of course, totally subjugates athletes, particularly athletes from... either either athletes who are minoritized within their own countries or from, you know, formerly colonized countries.
3: That's a great point. And I think I'm really glad you brought that into the conversation, no doubt.
2: So one question that we want to ask is something that I know, like, I've been talking about openly on Twitter is sort of how, like, how should we, how might we be approaching the Olympic Games as people who genuinely love sport, right, and, and really do want athletes to have the healthiest conditions and also the, the spectators and, and the, the residents of these cities to have the most healthy conditions, you know, what should we be telling or, you know, what should fans be doing and thinking about when it comes to the Olympic Games in light of the really abhorrent, and awful ethics of the entire Olympic movement. I mean, should people be watching? Should they be boycotting? Kind of, where do you fall in on this question?
3: So yes, this is a question I've had to grapple with for a long time as to how to deal with the Olympics when they come up, especially once you know what you know about the Olympics, what we've been talking about all day here today. And I'm not the kind of person who, who likes to tell other people what they should do. I can see a lot of different perspectives on this. I know some people just entirely boycott watching the Olympics, and I respect that position. I tend to watch it selectively and cheer for the more politically-minded athletes, some of whom will reach out to me behind the scenes, and, and I can't but help support them as they try to realize their Olympic dreams. And. Part of why I do follow them is not just because they're reaching out to me, but because they're athlete workers. That's the way I look at them as athlete workers. And that the Olympics can be this incredible stage for leveraging justice for these athlete workers. There was a really important study done by Ryerson University a little while back that compared the uh, percentage of the revenues that major leagues across the world get to their athletes. So like the NBA, NFL, NHL, the English Premier League of soccer, football. And in all those leagues, between 45 and 60% of the revenues go directly to athletes. Whereas in the Olympic sphere, it's only 4.1%. Wow. Gap is just enormous. And so I think that if I think about the athletes as workers and think about the Olympics as a stage for potentially leveraging more justice, I don't have as big of a problem watching the Olympics, but I definitely respect those who don't want to have anything to do with them especially because let's be honest in city after city around the world Mm -hmm. people have been traumatized by the olympics people have been kicked out of their homes by the olympics they've had their spiritual lives totally unsettled by the olympics and so who am i to tell them if they say i don't want to even watch the olympics it's a triggering experience who am i to tell them oh come on you know suck it up and cheer for these athlete workers so i think Everyone's positionality very much matters, and, and I've tried to explain where I'm coming from on it best I can.
0: And you know, just to, just to follow up on that point you made, Jules, there was just a, there's a piece today um, that came out in made by history in the Washington Post um, by Macintosh um, Ross and his co-author, uh, and it, it deals with exactly one of these situations in Tokyo. I'm just going to read from that piece really briefly. Twice displaced Tokyo resident Kohai Jinno was evic- evicted in 2013 at age 80 when his home was destroyed for the National Olympic Stadium rebuild. Relocation cost him dearly. Now 87, Jinno told Reuters that losing the home he'd lived in longer than any other filled him with great sadness. Quote, had it not been for the Olympics, my life would have been so different. And then it goes on to say, distressingly, Olympic-induced displacement is not some anomalous event. Indeed, the stories of residents like Jinno are only a footnote in the latest chapter of a much larger Olympic story. In the last 50 years, more than 2 million people have lost their homes due to the gentrification and remodeling of cities for sport's largest mega event.
3: Yeah, a heartbreaking story. And you know, when when I was in Tokyo in July 2019 with the great sports writer Dave Zirin and we were covering the machinations of pre-Olympic planning for the nation, we met with two women who were similarly displaced by both the 1964 olympics and the 2020 olympics and one thing that i think is important to note about that situation is they were living in this place called the kasumi gaoka apartment complex a public housing complex and we've seen with the olympics it is it leverages all this force and power in society to destroy public housing at a time when we need more public housing, not Mm -hmm. less public housing. And these women that met with us, they would not go under their real names in the story. They would not allow us to take a photograph because they were very scared at the possibility of retribution should they put their names out there in the public sphere. And I lived in Rio de Janeiro, so I saw this with my own two eyes. In the lead-up to and during the 2016 Summer Olympics, I had the good fortune of being a Fulbright Research Fellow, where I met lots of people who are displaced by the Olympic machine. And every single time, it's heartbreaking. And behind the numbers of 77,000 people getting displaced in Rio, every single one of those 77,000 people have a story, and it's often a really painful one. And this is not some like bug of the Olympics. This is a feature now of the Olympics, mm-hmm. where in the global north, it tends to happen more through gentrification, whereas mm-hmm. in the global south, it tends to happen more through forced eviction, sort of brass knuckle eviction. And it's, a, it's an ingrained trend that the International Olympic Committee says they have nothing to do with. They tend to push it off and blame the local hosts, as we're seeing right now in Tokyo. Yeah. But the reality is, it's their project, and they should have some ownership of the problem. If you ask me,
2: absolutely. Um, and, and thank you, um, Dar- uh, Nathan, for kind of bringing those quotes in. And I know, um, Jules, I've seen you kind of tweet that that story about, yeah, the the person who was evicted twi- twice. I mean, that's just like totally horrific. And and I think what I would add, um, since I have been you know tweeting a little bit about you know whether I'll watch the Olympics, is that you know I'm not like officially kind of sitting in front of you know, my my laptop specifically to kind of like watch the Olympic Games. You know, I have Peacock, but it's like a terrible app, as many people have talked about. Um, but I am keeping sort of up to date on it on Twitter. And so, and I'll often see a lot of like the NBC kind of Tokyo ad that will, um, provide sort of quick video snapshots of like someone winning, winning a race at the end of the race or someone being awarded the medal or whatever. And so even though I'm not like officially sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to watch this race. I'm going to watch that. Like I am keeping up to date, you know, as I think most of us are. Um, but it's such a difficult situation, especially when there are so many kind of disparate parties who are not, you know, connected and not directly connected to what's going on and kind of to harming other people. So it's kind of to your point about, you know, whether we should be telling people, should they or should they not be watching? It's such a difficult thing. And I, I, like you said, just to boost what you said, it really does depend on kind of like our own perspectives and our positionality. So so thank you so much for that really nuanced answer.
1: One of the things that has been particularly troublesome and, and I'll admit has been really frustrating from from my perspective, that's really come to a head during the Tokyo games, but it, it it's a bi- it happens in every games, um, in the Olympics in general, is the fact that we focus so much or or public attention focuses so so much on athlete safety. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's what's frustrating um, because athlete safety should be first and foremost in, in many respects. But we tend to focus only on athlete safety and we tend to completely ignore the stories, the feelings, the emotions, the mental and physical health and the risk to all of the other laborers. Um, that are not athletic laborers to the staff, to the service staff that feed the games that, without the, without which the games could not go on. And when it comes to Tokyo 2020 uh, or 2021, um, we're we're seeing a discourse that's completely ignoring all of the risk that the community in general is taking on the bodily and physical and mental health risks that are harming all of these people. How do we get those stories to be at the fore, Jules? Like how do we as a as a community start thinking of the Olympic Games not just in terms of athletics, but in terms of a massive exploitation and harm that affects that will affect people? mostly racialized and marginalized and vulnerable populations for years and years and years to come? Like, how do we get that message out there?
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, for starters, I would say that we've seen massive progress on this front, Derek, in the sense that I've been studying the Olympics for well over a decade now. And when I started, you could stand up from behind the podium at one of these bid ceremonies when you're trying to get the olympics and say oh the the games will float everyone's economic boat it'll be a big boon for the city everyone's going to benefit tourism's going to go through the roof etc etc and there wouldn't be that much pushback at that time today totally different scenario You can't get up at that same podium and say those things because there's just so much academic work now refuting those basic assumptions about how the Olympics are going to be an economic heyday for your city and do all these good things for your city. So I think it's actually, although when you're in the middle of it, it, it can feel stressful and like we're not making as much progress in terms of shifting the discourse. I think we should also appreciate that collectively a lot of people really have shifted the discourse. And I would... Credit, you know, I just mentioned academics and the academic work, but I would certainly credit anti-Olympics activists around the world who stood up in the face of pretty well-moneyed power to say no to the, the Games and also to human rights groups who've made mega events part of their human rights portfolio. Not to mention, I just feel like there's many more critical journalists out there who are asking the tough questions. In previous Olympics, at this stage, when the games had already started, nobody would be calling me. No journalist would really be calling me. The time for critique would have been done. That all happens in the lead-up to the games. Mm -hmm. But with Tokyo, that's definitely not the case. People are still calling me and curious about these larger trends that we're talking about. It's been mainstreamed. Is it always going to go the way that we want? No, of course not, because we're dealing with powerful entities here with lots of interests But I definitely see it as a positive shift in the right direction to talk about the Olympics with nuance and complexity, because that's what very much the general public deserves.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I just just a a brief comment, like one of the things that that I noticed right during the opening ceremonies, I I did not watch the opening ceremonies, but I did see folks like you and others posting um, pictures and imagery of protests against the Olympics. But like still when i would turn on cbc here in canada or turn on cnn that was like a secondary line to the story and and like i i am with you and i appreciate it and it's actually great to hear that like there's progress being made but it still seems like we're just so far behind and we still view the olympics and we want to view the olympics as this like symbolic moment where everything is like okay and this is a sterile zone of safety or as Thomas, Thomas Bach says it's safe and secure even though it's not and, and I'm, I just I guess I need more hope to, to, to think that we're, we're actually or that, that things are actually changing
3: yeah, and I don't want to give a, a false sense of of mm-hmm. hope mm-hmm. as to what's happening here. I don't want to be a Pollyanna about it. And I think you're right. The, the, the threads, the narrative threads, are secondary to the sports spectacle. And I just think that's always going to be very difficult to get around. You know, but if you can yeah. have the protests being foregrounded in the same story as the Amazing Athletics or the spectacular Mm -hmm. opening ceremony or whatever, that's definitely a step in the right direction. And what I'm seeing out of Tokyo is just that. I mean, an editorial, or rather a column in the Denver Post pointed to the, the activists outside of the opening ceremonies being the real victors here, because they stood up for power and stood up for what they believed in, whereas the inside was just a vapid ceremony that felt very empty and devoid of meaning. That's the Denver Post. I mean, that's a very mainstream outlet. On CNN, you've got Selena Wang going to the ground uh, and looking and talking, looking at and talking to protesters. And so is it going to be every single story? No. But there are a lot of journalists out there now who know what the real deal is with the Olympic Games, and they're willing to report on it accordingly.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So we've been talking here about the fans, um, protesters, uh, and even media coverage, right, in terms of these ethical questions. But I think in some ways the hardest one to grapple with, and this is not just true of the Olympics, this is a question that comes up in discussions of harm and sport in any context. It's the question of consent from the standpoint of the athlete, which is to say um, there is obviously, I think, very little, at least, question that many and quite possibly most or even all actually existing Olympic athletes want the Games to take place, right? This is what they've been training for. This is what they've been preparing for. Um, They've invested so much. How do you grapple with the fact that on the most literal level of consent, which is to say, like, if you actually go to a person and ask them the question, do you want to play in the Olympics right now? Their answer is going to be yes very likely how do you grapple with that in the context of a politics that demands the cancellation or even abolition of the games right and this is of course this is not me trying to tell you that that's wrong because i mean this is coming this is a question being posed to you by someone who gets this question a lot right (laughs) and is is very much in the abolition cancellation camp and it's a question coming from someone who thinks that actually we often have a, a too a too limited understanding of what consent means in this context because we want to leave out structural and ideological factors that condition people and put people in positions to then need to and want to consent in the moment but if we look at the lar- if you kind of zoom out to the sort of a larger question of the society and their life and experience it might be a lot muddier
3: yeah that's a really interesting way of framing it through consent and uh, this actually takes us back full circle to the original moment of our conversation where you asked me why do i oppose uh, the Mm -hmm. tokyo games happening and i pointed to medical officials so when it's a global public health situation i listen to global public health officials if i want to know about the rules inside of sports then i turn to athletes and figure out what's best for them i think you're right that that really haven't been asked Olympians, really haven't been asked whether they want to proceed. And many aren't in a position to say no to the Olympics. I think when we talk about Olympians, we need to remember that not all Olympians are created equal in terms of their financial insulation and thus their ability to speak out on the issues we've been talking about today or to stand up for their rights as human beings or athletes. We have people from the National Basketball Association who are financially insulated, who have no problem going to the Olympics. The Olympics needs those guys more then those guys need the Olympics. And for me, I honestly am a little bit more disappointed in politically thinking athletes on that team who Mm -hmm. aren't taking into consideration these issues of safety and consent than I am the person who's in a very much lesser known sport for whom this is their one chance to become known and maybe to climb out of debt. I mean, let's not forget here in the United States, numerous athletes are forced Mm -hmm. to start GoFundMe campaigns just to realize Mm -hmm. their Olympic dreams. They don't necessarily have a bunch of corporate sponsors buoying their efforts. And so this is there's a difference, I guess, is what I'm trying to suggest here in terms of athletes on this front. But I, I think that is a great question to think about this in terms of consent. I've never seen any kind of global poll on whether Olympians around the world wanted to have the Olympics this summer. And to be honest, the International Olympic Committee it always kind of surprised me that they didn't just push the Games two years forward instead of one. After all, they could have very easily just said, hey, we used to have the Olympics, both winter and summer in the same year, and we're going to tap into that tradition in the face of a global health pandemic. But they didn't do that. And they didn't really give athletes, as far as I can tell, the option to have that discussion. Mm -hmm. And so yes, that's why I'm saying right now, it's really important to support athletes who are demanding a meaningful seat at the table where they can express their thoughts on the consent uh, to those who are actually running the Olympic Games.
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm really, I'm really glad that you kind of brought up how the need, our need to sort of differentiate between the circumstances that different athletes face. And and as someone who's been quite critical, for example, of white swimmers in the U.S. who have really utterly failed to kind of show their support for um, for Simone Manuel and for other people that are uh, really fighting, fighting the fight against uh, racial injustice. But I, I think it's, you know, it's easy for me to kind of forget that, like you said, like swimming. Is- one of those many sports where the Olympic Games is like one of the few venues for for them to really hopefully earn some money um, and most of them indeed I think do live in some kind of debt or live with their parents or kind of whatever mm-hmm. um, so thank you for that and, and to kind of continue with this line of thought about you know what might the Olympics look like is I mean do you think is there a way that the Olympic Games could sort of be reformed and that they could be that there could be an Olympic Games that's like ethical and ethical in the sense of, you know, like treating athletes right, protecting athletes, protecting fans, obviously protecting the citizens of the people who live there. I mean, do you think that's possible? And if so, what might that look like?
3: Right now, I do not view it as possible if the current construction of the International Olympic Committee stays in place. The International Olympic Committee is a privileged sliver of the global 1%, and they are really the major roadblock in stopping meaningful reform within the Olympic sphere. And so unless the International Olympic Committee is abolished uh, or reconfigured in a way that's truly significant, I don't see much way forward in the, I think we can get little advances in the short term, but in the long term, you're always going to be up against that kind of situation. I mean, the International Olympic Committee is one of those organizations that is always changing just a little bit so it doesn't actually have to change at all. And let me just say, I'm somebody who has engaged with the possibility of reform in a Mm -hmm. good faith way. I mean, if you go back to an essay I wrote in 2014 for the New York Times, it was like a magic wand essay that they invited me to write about. What would I do if I could change the Olympics? And I embraced it in good faith And I wrote the essay on the way I would revise the games back in 2014. And did anything that I suggest happen? No. Did the International Mm -hmm. Olympic Committee, you know, reach out or show any interest in any of those reforms? Absolutely not. And so I think the first thing that we'd have to do is just get rid of the International Olympic Committee. And if there must be an IOC, reconfigure it in ways where critically minded athletes are, have a large seat at the table and can actually start to run the show. I mentioned all these athlete formations right now before when we were talking. Get athletes from that group, not compliant athletes who are just willing to be yes men and yes women to the International Olympic Committee. Of course, there are plenty of those, just like there's plenty of yes men and yes women in every single sphere, whether it's academia or the local bakery. So, But I think it, you'd have to reconfigure the the IOC to really make any Progress whatsoever here. But I would just highlight, you know, not to be Pollyanna, but I do feel like because of the global pressure on the International Olympic Committee to change and the global awareness that has really emerged over the last decade around the endemic downsides to the Olympics, you know, we're in a much better position to see the Games revised. But, you know, I can sympathize with those who just want to abolish them because it does seem like a very difficult road with the International Olympic Committee still in power.
1: Yeah, we, we as you know, Jules, we appreciate that take so much. And there's this these common threads that we see in not just the Olympics, but many mega events and many mega con- sports conglomerates like FIFA and like the NCAA and things that happen where athletes' voices are not listened to. And I think many of us, uh, critical people are saying, like, screw reform. Reform is not the way forward. We need to completely build a new structure, new institutions, new systems around putting athletes' voices first. And I and and I think we on this show truly, truly do appreciate um, that take that take as well. Is there anything else that you we've talked about a lot? Is there anything else that you feel like we've missed or that you'd really like to have our listeners um, take away from this conversation?
3: Well, thanks for that. I mean, one thing that we'll hear as we get closer to the Olympics often is the discussion of legacy speak, the idea that the Olympics leave a positive legacy for the host city. Now, I haven't heard much discussion of that, in part because I think the legacy idea has been kind of exploded in Tokyo because mm-hmm. there's no fans, there's no tourism and yeah. anything. But I think the, the astute Olympics observer should be aware of that sort of discursive element that could be coming down the road here. And let's be honest, most of these legacies that they talk about Are really false. I mean, they're fictitious. It's like trying to buy a unicorn with a bucket of Dogecoin or something. Like, just because you think it's happening doesn't mean it actually (laughs) is happening. And so, I think just awareness of legacy speak and that's just one more lever for pushing back. I don't even use the term legacy. I'm a little surprised to hearing myself use it here with you right (laughs) now because I usually frame it more as promises around the Olympics and follow through around the Olympics. And all too often, there is no follow through on these promises. Yeah. whether it's going to be clean water for Guanabara Bay and, and Rio de Janeiro, or an increase in sports participation at the London, after the London 2012 games, neither of which happened, by the way, that were going to be these big legacies. And finally, I would just say that perhaps one of the biggest and yet inadvertent legacies of these Tokyo Olympics is that you have revived and enlivened anti-Olympics descent around the globe. Tokyo 2020 has just given ammunition to every single anti-Olympics activist group around the world <laughs> who have hopefully an even bigger platform for raising the important issues that we've been talking about to push us more toward justice in this area.
1: Well, well, Jules, you I think you've just given us the title for our episode, Buying Unicorns with Doge Coins, um, with Jules <laughs> boycott. So we appreciate you spending time with us. We're always um, enamored and absolutely taken aback by your brilliance and, and the way you articulate um, um, your points that that takes into account much more than than a single um, or even multitude of perspectives so thank you so much for coming on the show again
3: my pleasure i love your show regular listener and it's a great honor to be able to join you again thank you all